0: No the, the big excitement here has been quarantine dues. What? Quarantine hair hairdos.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh we're not there yet. It's pretty close though. It's getting dire, but I do you just take matters into your own hands.
0: Yep, no guard just buzz no it all off.
1: No guard? <laughs> Man, next thing you know you're going to be shaving it with a straight razor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, I left the beard, so the beard stops at my glasses. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's
1: awesome. then
0: went all the way down on my head and have some nice white splotches in my hair <laughs> that are more evident now. And uh, because my hair grows crazy fast, you know, my head had five o'clock shadow at noon. So. Oh,
1: my gosh. That's so unfair. Fast-growing hair wasted on people that are going to shave their head.
0: <laughs> they cut it all off in their my yard. Oh, my
1: God. Exactly. Ugh. Like I cut mine to, like, below my – or right above my ears when I had hazel, and it's taken this long just to grow back. So. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's fine. You just squander yours. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it just looks like, all oh, your hair fell off onto your face now. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, nice.
0: You know, you remember that, um, were they Wooly Willies? Or the the thing with the magnet stick?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, I forgot all about that thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: (laughs) Yep, that's a pretty good picture.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Were you pleased to side by side with that?
0: Sure. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess we should get going. So three...
1: Two, one. 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science.
0: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
1: Uh, you know, I'm still stressed out because it's about to be finals week. You would have figured that this would have... <laughs> let up but no no all that april stress that's usually around for professors is definitely back right now yeah Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah but get through that Mm -hmm. then virtual field camp so you know how are you doing
0: (laughs) oh pretty good okay great Mm -hmm. we're we're cranking along things are 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 still still weird but
1: are you back uh at least everything's back put back in place after your big remodel
0: uh, we're operational again. We're still doing a lot of shop improvement work. Mm-hmm. Uh, like today uh, we were building, uh, some work tables for the injection molding machine and some things like that, that things that just really needed to be done. Yeah. And so we're taking this time right now. We've got a little bit of a, I'm way backed up on programming work. But as far as physical shop work, we're pretty much caught up and we've got a little bit of a lull. Unfortunately, I think two or three things are all going to come in simultaneously probably next week.
1: (laughs) Always, always. Uh,
0: So we're taking some advantage of that time right now and going crazy getting benches and hanging stuff on walls and getting toolboxes organized and getting ready because it's about to be a bloodbath.
1: Yeah. Well, that's always fun. So, I mean, anyone that listens to us knows we talk a lot about productivity and I'm minorly, majorly obsessed with it. (laughs) So have you settled into your new desk? (laughs) That's what I need to know.
0: (laughs) I'm still working on it.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: It is a work in progress still. It's still really tall. I'm sitting on a, like a workbench stool right now.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, Gotcha.
0: So I've got to get the height or a chair situation figured out, and I uh, need to need to get all of my drawers a little more figured out. I'm I'm going from having two rolling little chest of drawer things to just using drawers in the desk.
1: Oh, gotcha! Yeah, you uh, don't want your drawers to be all messed up,
0: <laughs> right? So I got to figure that out and uh, put a filing cabinet by the desk, which. As much as we're trying to keep things paperless, uh, it's probably mostly going to be used for storing stuff like my seal toes and hard hat and mm-hmm. safety gear for going into plants and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I'm desperately trying to make sure that everything we do lives in an electronic version so that yeah. if something terrible happens or we're at a location and need information, we're like, oh, it's in that file back at the office.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Nobody wants that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, yeah it's it's still a a work in progress, but we're getting there
1: uh i I don't think I'm there. I yeah, this work at home thing, man, it's just thrown me for a loop. I had my desk and my office all set up, and this is just uh, I don't know i have I feel like you probably I have one, two, three, four, five computers within my reach right now, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I haven't figured it out yet, that's okay just, just yeah. in time for it to all end probably I'll get it figured out
0: I don't know I think things are gonna remain different for a long time
1: that's great I hope so right because <laughs> I'll, I'll have this desk figured out is what I'm saying <laughs>
0: right. well uh you know I think we might get our desks organized with uh, a half-life of about <laughs> seven quarantines
1: <laughs> oh that was beautiful I was wondering how you were going to um Intro that.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about radiometric methods of geophysics
1: Oh, uh, I was excited until you said geophysics, but I'll try to stay excited
0: <laughs> I mean, we're using it to do something something rock classification. I don't know. It's just gamma rays. Come on
1: Is this what you guys you can't like you'll do everything you can and make every tool you can to avoid looking and touching a rock, huh? <laughs>
0: I mean, if you want to get lowered down a borehole, we could try that.
1: Yeah, that'd be amazing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I would be pro that. I don't think I'd fit that six or four inches. (laughs) Here's your
0: scuba tank. Good luck.
1: Oh, it'd be so cool. (laughs) Um, There was a whole bunch of... uh, So I used to work in the oil industry, and there was always a whole bunch of um, videos that were rolling around that people dropped cameras down boreholes and we could never tell if those were real or not, but they were super exciting. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, But so that's what we do a lot is stick radioactive tools down boreholes because you actually can't look at the rocks and that's the point, right?
0: (laughs) Right. And so in some cases the tool itself contains a radioactive source. In some cases we're just picking up radioactive sources from within the rock.
1: Mm-hmm. Anyone who's taken any one of my classes—that's one of my favorite questions. It's on every exam: is where does the heat that drives plate tectonics come from? Turns out, we're pretty radioactive down there. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what do we need to look at these gamma rays then?
0: Well, I think, but before we go too far, we know so much about atomic and nuclear science. It's astounding. Mm -hmm. it's even more astounding when you put it in the perspective of we didn't even know there was such a thing as radioactivity (laughs) until 1896 Uh with becquerel
1: right um i mean that's older than plate tectonics but
0: (laughs) it's older than plate tectonics but we also know a lot more about it than we do plate tectonics (laughs) uh
1: yes that is that oh that is very true um okay so tell us its origins
0: well, so you've got uh, you've got Becquerel, who discovered radioactivity, uh, and that was right after Rengen discovered X-rays, which is a fun story, but for another episode.
1: Yeah, that is a good story. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> and then just a couple years later, uh, Pierre and Marie Curie actually coined the word radioactivity when they were looking at the element radium.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. And yeah. And then... Go ahead.
0: Well, and then <laughs> and then we've done lots of nuclear science since then. Uh, everything figuring out from figuring out how to uh, make bombs to making energy to making medical isotopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've come up with lots of creative ways to use radioactivity. Uh, and we've learned that there are about 300 isotopes that are radioactive.
1: Uh, yeah. And you can use them on all different scales. So you alluded to half-lives earlier because some of them are useful for some things, like short-term things. Everyone, not everyone, but probably the most common, I think, is carbon, radiocarbon dating. Everyone thinks that we use that for everything. But actually, you can only use it for things that are uh, 14,000 years old or so. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one because everyone thinks that's the thing that we use. But just like you said, there's a ton of different ones, and they all have different half-lives, and therefore you can date different age range things with them.
0: Right. And if you've forgotten some of your basic uh, high school chemistry, because who hasn't? <laughs> uh, so when we say isotope, we just are talking about uh an element or an atom that has a same number of protons and electrons. So that's what defines its atomic number. You know, this is uranium, uh, but the number of neutrons can be variable. And so that's what def- makes it an isotope.
1: Right. Exactly. Uh,
0: so for example, you can have uh, hydrogen, which is one proton and no neutron, plain hydrogen. You can have deuterium, which is one proton and one neutron, or you can have tritium, which is one proton and two neutrons, all three hydrogen. Right. So those 300 isotopes I mentioned earlier, those all come from 92 elements. Mm -hmm. And not all of them are radioactive.
1: Right. Some of them are stable both ways, right?
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when we're looking at radioactivity, we commonly hear about the three types of radiation
1: the one that makes incredible Hulk, the one that <laughs> no wait right there's Go spider-man ahead. radiation this and exactly <laughs> superman vision radiation and
0: <laughs> so what's the first type of radiation do you remember that
1: oh man i i didn't know you were gonna do this your notes aren't good enough for me to remember this stuff <laughs>
0: <laughs> the least energetic uh,
1: uh no i don't know go for it okay alpha (laughs) oh well that's uh see this is where i think it's gonna be harder than the thing that's in my head and i'm like there's no way that's what he's asking i'm not gonna answer it see kids always say what you think right (laughs) uh okay yeah alpha okay so now for the hard one so
0: what, what what's an alpha particle there's the hard one
1: Oh, why, I don't know. I hate <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> okay, so this is... Um, uh, ha, I mean, that's when I know what alpha decay is. <laughs> so your little atomic nucleus is spitting out those little alpha particles, right? Right. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs>
0: so an alpha particle is a helium nucleus. Okay. Uh, so it's got two protons, two neutrons... And no electrons, it's just the nucleus. So it's a positively charged particle. Okay. And yes, when things decay, with alpha decay, this helium nucleus goes whizzing out, uh, but it's really not that energetic. So after a few centimeters of air, it's done. That's sad. (laughs) Or a sheet of copy paper.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, great. Yeah.
0: Okay, so second type of radiation.
1: That's beta. Got these. I'm on board.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going down the Greek alphabet. <laughs>
1: yep, sure am.
0: <laughs> uh, so beta radiation is more energetic, and it is when you eject an electron.
1: Okay. and then... Which is
0: a lot less massive than a proton, but it is moving.
1: Right, yes, because they're the spastic little chihuahua dogs that are circling everything.
0: Right, and so a beta particle can go... Mm, three, four feet in air, hmm. something like that, uh, a, a chunk of metal is perfectly adequate to stop it.
1: Right. Okay.
0: So, so far, neither of these are useful for geophysics. Correct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because a little bit of rock will stop all of
1: them. Uh, all of it, yes. Correct. <laughs> uh,
0: so now we get to gamma.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But here I'm going to start saying gamma rays, not gamma particles.
1: Mm, okay. Yeah. because so it starts to get weird.
0: It starts to get weird. We hit that wave particle duality thing. Uh, (laughs) If you want to talk about them as particles, you could talk about them as photons Uh of certain energies. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's up to you. Uh, I want to say gamma ray. So they are electromagnetic radiation with frequencies greater than 10 to the 16th power hertz.
1: That's pretty high. Yeah. That's a... It's incredible Hawk stuff right there. Yeah, for sure.
0: And then you actually start getting into where you can measure energies in one of my favorite units, the mega electron volt.
1: <laughs> uh, is that your superhero name? Right. <laughs> mm, okay. So this one's the most energetic then.
0: Yeah. Um, so they're up there a little above x-rays. Uh, they're very energetic. They are very ionizing and very dangerous mm-hmm. in in high doses. Yes. Uh, though dosing in the units of radiation are another whole fascinating side tangent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, you've got becquerels and Uh, uh yeah. yeah. Anyway.
1: Now we're, we're going to get it to Orsted's and
0: ray tesla's. and yeah no tesla's <laughs> magnetic but yeah so we're, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. we'll we'll divert from that uh that whole tangent but <laughs> <laughs> but these are the uh energies po- photons rays that can go up to 900 or thousand feet in air
1: totally measurable
0: totally measurable uh still you know, a few inches of soil is going to stop it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> uh, so so this,
1: this has a lot to do with how you're going to design your tools to measure these things then.
0: Oh, yeah. Because if you take your nice stainless steel, half inch thick, very resilient borehole tool and put your uh-huh. sensor in it, it's going to be in a nice shield.
1: Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. You want to smash that puppy and smear its face along the rock as tight as you can get it.
0: <laughs> right, um, but I mean, okay, you can get tens of centimeters range if you've got strong emitters.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, which we'll talk about what those mean in terms of rocks.
0: Right, uh, but the cool thing about gammas is their frequency or their energy. Again, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, how energetic is the particle or what's the frequency of the radiation? Uh, that is characteristic of what isotope decayed.
1: Which is super nice.
0: <laughs> right.
1: I don't mean that in the geological pun sense. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it's, it's nice to be able to have an empirical, oh, this is that exact element.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, so you can identify based on the spectra, a certain element with a huge, as, as everything in spectra, spectrography, huge, huge caveats, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you can identify what's there.
1: Oh, uh, isn't everything in geophysics, just one big asterisk. <laughs> I mean,
0: in geology, it's two. <laughs> so, uh, And, you know, one of them that is a common thing that trips folks up is there's the characteristic of the decay, but then there's also a process that can emit gammas called K-capture Okay. that can produce peaks that you may not be expecting and that can throw people off. Uh, So this is where you get, like, an electron from that lowest K-orbital around a, a nucleus that actually descends and slams into the nucleus.
1: Ugh. I hate it when my electrons fall down.
0: (laughs) Right. And uh, so this K-capture, this electron slams into the nucleus, and you get radiation uh, in the gamma spectrum from it. And it it can trip people up when they're looking at these things for the first time.
1: So what causes... I mean, you can't... Does that happen more or less frequently, depending on what element you're dealing with? Or is it just... A random thing. Yeah,
0: it's certain orbital configurations, but it has been oh. way too long since I took mm,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> any
0: class on that.
1: Mm, yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, interesting.
0: Yeah, so that generates these gamma rays. Uh, I was referencing my environmental geophysics book on this topic, and they have a very interesting cutoff of um, it, when you're looking at these gamma ray spectra, you have many energy bins that things get dumped into Mm -hmm. and some of the early detectors and early then now inexpensive, uh, would only have say four bins and those would be tuned around elements that you would probably want to detect things like uranium and thorium. Okay. Uh, so these four bin detectors would say, yeah, about this much uranium, about this much thorium or whatever other elements you were looking at. Uh, in this environmental geophysics book, which is the Reynolds book, uh, they were saying they don't consider anything with less than 256 bins to be oh. a spec, a, a true spectra.
1: Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> uh, which, yeah, I sort of see the point. But if you're measuring it more than one energy, it is a spectrographic instrument.
1: Right. Hmm.
0: And the distinction of 256 being a power of two tells me that this is a physicist looking at this. A <laughs> physicist with significant computer science training.
1: Uh, gotcha. That's pretty funny.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> hmm. So we, we can just take a tool that measures gamma radiation, be it just the counts, uh, how much radiation there is, or that actually looks at a spectra and tries to determine what the elements are, and we can drop it down a borehole.
1: Yep, we sure can.
0: And we get these gamma ray logs that people like to look at, and they go, ooh, look at that kick in this log.
1: Yes. <laughs> I did that for a while.
0: <laughs> and so not being a, a an oil and gas person, <laughs> why did you get excited about kicks and gamma ray logs?
1: Oh, man. So it's really interesting because when you talk about you know, you use this gamma ray log. It's not like it's the first log. I don't have my, all my log books are quarantined in my office right now. <laughs> um, but people use these almost like lithology logs, which is dangerous. <laughs> and so you stick these gamma ray logs down your borehole. And just like you said, John, so you're looking for things like uranium, thorium, potassium that are emitting these gamma rays, okay? And you look for them and the in general the things that have lots of these elements in them are shales. Okay? So you have okay. a lot of feldspars that have these in them because those elements can go into feldspars. You got a lot of mud in shales, shells shales. shales. <laughs> Sorry, I've always had problems with this word. Um, So you've got a lot of mud in there, um, and these mud rocks are just generally pretty radioactive. Their configuration, atomic configuration, allows for uranium and thoriums to be in there. So you will have a high gamma response when you have shale rocks. And in general, a clean sandstone, although it has feldspars in it, will have a much lower gamma ray response. And so this is displayed you know, in feet on these really long pieces of paper. And so you'll max out on one side, and you'll say, oh, that's a shale, or it's a hot rock. Okay, that's what it really is. It's a radioactive rock. Okay, um, yeah. In general, those are shales. Um, and then it goes the other way, and you're like, oh, there's a nice clean sandstone, right? So... A long time ago, you weren't looking for shales for oil. You were looking for the things that shales would migrate their oil into. <laughs> so you're looking for those nice clean sandstones. Um, and I say, in general, it's a lithology log because you can have sandstones that will incorporate, um, you know, more. If you have a sandstone that's particularly feldspathic, your gamma ray response will be different. And so instead of saying, oh, this is a shaley sandstone, it could still be a clean sandstone. It just has a lot of potassium feldspar in it or something like that. So we use it as a lithology log and a lithology indicator. But you have to be careful. What it does do, though, is tell grain size really well. Because mud, shale rocks, mud rocks, I'm going to use those two words interchangeably right now. Please, heavenly do not send me hate mail about using those interchangeably <laughs> right now. Um, so really fine grain stuff, right? Um, so really fine-grained stuff has a particular look to it, and coarser grain stuff has a particular look to it, also on the gamma-ray logs. Um, so you can see sequences in here too, fining upwards, coarsening upwards, big, massive, blocky packages like that. Well,
0: and there are different types of gamma-ray logs, and that's looking at a specific type of gamma-ray log.
1: Right, so... Yes, so you can use all those different types to put together a better feeling about the lithology. But just looking at any one of them and saying this is equivalent to lithology is dangerous.
0: Well, and uh, (laughs) it should become very apparent when you look at the units.
1: No one ever does that, though.
0: (laughs) On these logs that this is (laughs) very qualitative.
1: (laughs) No one ever does that. The API units, is this what you're talking about? The
0: API unit. Mm
1: Mm-hmm yeah
0: so these are often reported in api which is american petroleum institute Uh
1: uh-huh zero to 150
0: and that means (laughs) if you take your instrument and you lower it into this pit that is in houston at the university Mm -hmm. it reads a certain api that is the calibration
1: yeah i don't understand what your problem is with that (laughs) (laughs) i love it everyone knows what that means 150 API, api units super shaley zero big clean sand
0: right so there's (laughs) that and the just measuring the radiation is a natural gamma ray log Mm
1: -hmm. so Uh, it's just listening
0: it's just listening Mm -hmm. Uh, then you can do things like a density gamma ray log
1: oh yeah okay yeah now we get into weird stuff
0: well not so much but it's it's uh,
1: not weird but oh go ahead go ahead. Y- you have
0: a radioactive tipped probe mm-hmm. uh so you use uh, i never can't say it right but americanium uh, sure. or something like that as a source
1: is that next to uh unobtainium on the
0: right yeah <laughs> okay yeah just just to the right of <laughs> okay
1: uh
0: so <laughs> it's it's what's in uh it's a different isotope that's used but i think uh 241 is what's in some smoke detectors.
1: Oh, interesting. Uh,
0: and and I think they use 231 in the the tips of these probes. But so it's emitting this radiation, and some of that radiation gets bounced back; it gets backscattered. Mm-hmm. And that happens through a process called Compton scattering.
1: Okay, that sounds uh, like a familiar geophysics word. <laughs>
0: Right, and it's one of the things that we have to correct for in the natural gamma-ray logs because it says that we have a tendency to detect a lot more low-energy things than high-energy things. High-energy things are hard to detect. It's very hard to get them to interact with your detector (laughs) because they're so high-energy. They just whiz right by, whiz right through it.
1: Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um,
0: But also they get scattered. Um, So one of those is detector efficiency. The actual Compton scattering is these high-energy things getting scattered. So even if you have a high-energy source, you see a distribution that tends to cluster at low energies, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So you've got this source. It's shooting out these gamma rays. They're scattering off the rock and coming back, and we're detecting them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We normally have... A couple of detectors one very close to the source which gives us a high spatial resolution right but low depth resolution we're only Mm -hmm, seeing like mm -hmm. right next to the borehole Um, then we have one at a higher offset that gives you low spatial resolution but a more general picture of the country rock around the borehole
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and if you're lucky you can get more than that
0: (laughs) yeah and the uh the idea is if the rock is more dense, it's going to have more interactions and more scattering. So you can run this through some formulas and get a pseudo density log.
1: Mm-hmm. And why which is really handy. <laughs> yeah, because we care about that because we want to know what's inside the rock or what could potentially be inside the rock.
0: Right. If you've got a not real dense rock, that leads you to think that there's probably a lot of porosity there.
1: And you they can look, store
0: things like oil and gas,
1: right, and you can look at these different if you've got more than one density log, you can look at these different ones and um how they interact, and it can tell you things like, "Oh, well, this is probably gas, this is probably water, this is probably a hydrocarbon based on all these formulas that you can massage it with." <laughs> But some of this matters, too, on what type of rock you think you have in the first place um, because you calibrate these logs based on whether you think you're in a sandstone or a limestone because those have certain energy profiles to begin with. Right. And so that is something you have to always pay attention to, young petroleum folks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Is what your density logs are calibrated to.
0: Absolutely, and then there is yet a third type of log.
1: Okay, neutron logs?
0: Neutron logs. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Great. Mm-hmm. So did you, you look at neutron logs much? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I... you,
0: well, what did you do with them mostly? I, I know what I would do with them, but I'm not trying to find oil and gas.
1: Well, that's what I tried to do. <laughs> right. So you try to figure out, you can do like um, how the density and the neutron logs interact can tell you porosity.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so that you definitely want to know. (laughs) So you can use other logs and these logs to figure out what stuff is in your rocks. So, you know, you're drilling with, before we get too far away, I want to talk about the importance of these, the depth that you investigate into your formation, right? Because generally when you're drilling, not all, some holes are air drilled, but generally you have mud that you're drilling with. Right, because you've got, you know, water cooled. And you've got to maintain pressure
0: in the borehole. Right,
1: exactly. And so you want to know what fluid is in those rocks. Right. It's not just good enough to know that there's something in there. You want to know what it is, because you don't want to go to all the expense of pulling it out if it's just water or if it's formation water, which is salty water. So you've got all kinds of electrical tools to deal with that. Or if it's actually oil, or if it's not a fluid at all and it's gas, um, which is generally wet in some sources or in some cases, um, so you want to know those differences. And when you're drilling, if you've got a really porous formation, that drilling mud will go into the formation. And so if you're only investigating a couple of centimeters in, or you know, an inch in because that's what we do in America. <laughs> right. You're, you're going to see the drilling fluid versus the actual formation fluid. So you need these things that investigate deeper into um, the formation so you can understand what is actually in the formation, not just, oh, this is just a porous rock that's sucking up a lot of my drilling fluid.
0: Right. And yeah, I think you really need, you can't use any one of these logs on their own.
1: Yes, yeah, it's the, yeah, so like what you were just talking about, talking about the neutron logs, you know, you look at what that neutron log does, and you also want to look at what the density logs are doing in those same formations to figure this stuff out. You're correct. To have the full suite is what you want.
0: <laughs> right, and these neutron logs, uh, these are the probes, I believe, that they actually like jam right up against the wall. Yeah, yeah. They They've have got a, little um, arms.
1: Yep, they got a little arm and a pad that smacks it as close as you can get, yeah.
0: And the cool thing here, too, is you can start playing games with, like, how the neutrons interact with water differently than they do gas and so on. Mm -hmm. It's like you were mentioning, you can start trying to get at what material the neutrons interacted with before they're coming back to your detectors. Based on the neutrons hit the material, uh, other things fly out, and we generally detect pretty slow neutrons coming back. Uh, we would call them thermal or epithermal neutrons,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which is code for really slow neutrons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things Aww. that it's a lot easier to build detectors for. Mm-hmm. And then based on the energies of those thermal and epithermal neutrons, we can get an idea of what those neutrons that we sent out interacted with.
1: Right. And I mean, you can calculate if you have a good idea of the rocks you're in to begin with i mean you can calculate true true porosity based on these like neutron porosities and density porosities that you read from these logs
0: right yes
1: which is you know i mean that's the the golden number that you want to know so
0: mm-hmm. but there's a lot of uh uncertainty
1: in oh, these yes <laughs> And there's also
0: uncertainty from the instruments, which is what I always like to point out on Mm -hmm. anything (laughs)
1: Uh, yeah, um, this is where simple things like caliper logs, which I always loved and those this has nothing to do with radioactivity But it does have to do with how good of Gamma readings and neutron readings you get is like you look at this caliper log if you're not looking at it, you're like, oh, look, we've got a kick in the gamma ray. Oh, this is what we're interested in. And then you look, and the caliper's going crazy. And it means you you could have a washout in the borehole. So now your, your tool that's supposed to be smashed up against the rock's hanging out in midair. And so the readings look, you know, they look great, but it's not great. It's not actually measuring the rock. Um, yeah, those are dangerous.
0: <laughs> yes, and you know, on the subject of instrumentation... A uh, friend of the show, Alicia White, over from the Embedded uh, podcast, said a while back that everything's a temperature sensor and some things measure other stuff too. <laughs> and I had a great example of that this week, that uh, we were looking at the the speed of some motors, and we're still, we still don't have this question totally answered yet, in that we saw some weird drift in speed over time
1: it's okay. like
0: huh okay so I'm like well let's let's log everything we can and sure enough speed is varying with temperature <laughs> so what the question that we're still grappling with is is the motor speed actually varying with temperature or is our instrument measuring motor speed drifting with temperature Uh uh-huh. or are they both occurring And it looks like the answer is probably that one. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. So just like, you know, there are temperature effects on everything. uh, There are so many effects on these tools that are going down boreholes. And the first one is you've got to be really careful because the depth that it says that you're looking at and the depth that it's looking at are not the same.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, do you mean... Depth of investigation, or do you mean actual like data below
0: well top depth?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, that's always off.
0: (laughs) Well, the big thing though is so you have to count for a finite period of time. The way we're measuring this radiation is we're saying in x seconds we counted so many hundred thousand particles or whatever. Mm -hmm. The tool is always moving, yeah. So you're integrating that over space and time, mm-hmm. and you're reporting it as a single data point. Uh, yes. So there's that to deal with, uh, and generally these things are designed so that the integration time and the tool speed combine to give you exactly a one-foot offset.
1: If so you're th- pulling everything correctly and all that.
0: Right. So the reported depth is generally about a foot deeper than what you actually measured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you see something at, you know, 783 feet, go look in the other logs at 782. Uh, so yeah. there's that. And these tools move slow. Uh, I mean, We're talking 30 feet a minute, somewhere like 10 meters a minute yeah uh which if you've got a big well that's slow <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah and every you know every little instrument is at a different part on that tool string because your tool strings can be you know many meters long
0: right and that should be corrected out in the data it that you get. it should
1: be <laughs> it should be but i'm just saying sometimes it doesn't make it that way uh yeah so i mean it's all about well in oil and gas it's all about maximizing your money right so um this is where a good geologist or geophysicist comes in because you don't log the whole thing you just you know in general because time is money right so all the time you've got with that well opened up to that drill string is time that you're not producing that well so that's always um Frustrating when you're going back and you're looking at legacy logs, and you're like, Oh, I want to know what's at 5,000 feet below the surface. And you're like, Oh, they didn't start logging till 6,000 feet. Awesome. Right. So, yeah, that's a pain.
0: So, there's that. There's calibration of all the instruments. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're using a scintillometer, which a lot of these are. When it is detecting and analyzing a single interaction, it doesn't count anything. It's like a single process computer. It can only analyze one interaction at a time, which is not a problem if you're in a nice clean sandstone. Uh, you're basically counting everything. But if you get into something that is really radioactive, you're missing a lot of counts and you have to do what's right. called the dead time correction. Okay. Which says, my instrument said I'm getting this many counts, but knowing the characteristics of my instrument, I predict I can produce a probability distribution of what the actual number of counts were. Ugh. And that is displayed in no way on the logs that I know of. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yes, correct.
0: Um, mm-hmm. And then there are geometric corrections, which don't really apply so much to wellbore. Um But as we learned with uh, Dr. Eric Kelsey, you can use radiation for other things like snow. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have to worry about like, is your detector in a valley or on a peak or next to a wall? Because if it's in the valley, it's getting exposed to radiation from above and below. Uh, If it's on a peak, it's going to read less. And if it's next to a wall, it's going to read a lot more. So you have to do things like, uh, well, you can get, it's sort of like gravity. You can get very advanced or you can do a pretty simple. So if you're in a valley, you divide your counts by 1.3. If you're on a hill, you multiply them by 1.5. And if you're next to a wall, you divide it by 1.5. Voodoo. Yeah. Um, (laughs) There's terrain clearance corrections if you're above ground. Like, you know, Eric said he used airplane data. Right. Uh, So the altitude between the plane and the surface You have to correct for that, just like in gravity, because there's more interaction depth. Uh, Mm -hmm. These corrections, this is why there are petrophysicists.
1: Yes. Correct.
0: Uh, Because these can get absolutely insane to try to back out all of the things (laughs) that can convolve with the lithology, which is what you care about.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, and it's something as simple as I'm reading this like it's like this neutron porosity log is set to a limestone matrix. But, oh, for some reason, we set it to a sandstone matrix, and it makes everything different until you know that. So, yeah, you're exactly right. This is why, yeah, petrophysics is a big thing to go into now because it's hard to keep all of this straight, and you need someone whose sole job is to feed you the correct information. (laughs)
0: Right. Yeah. And it just gets more complicated with, uh, you know, a lot of these gamma ray spectrometers now uh, surpassing a thousand plus channels of energies.
1: (laughs) That's unbelievable.
0: Yeah. So you're scanning everywhere from like half a mega electron volt to three, three and a half mega electron volts. Wow. And depending on the atomic number and the energy uh, the method of production of those gamma rays changes. So between in the range that we sense Compton scattering is the big factor. And that's good. Cause we understand it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but you go to higher energies, a uh, process called pair production becomes the big thing. As you go to lower energies, uh, you're dominated by the photoelectric effect. And as you go to higher atomic numbers, uh, it changes where that cutoff point between these things is. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. And one of the things I didn't understand until I took a class on dealing with nuclear physics was, you know, we talk about, okay, well, we do this thing in this instrument in the lab where we're measuring a certain kind of radiation or we're bombarding with a certain kind of radiation. There's nothing special about an X-ray machine that makes you, you know your sample emit X-rays, and that's what you're measuring. It's the sample is always doing everything. All of these processes are happening at once. It's just which one are we detecting and caring about?
1: Ah, yeah, yes. So it's
0: like, well, everything is Compton scattering and pair producing and having photoelectric effects but we're mostly interested in this region in this process. So that's the, but we're assuming that that is all that's going on. Right. Cause that's how we can understand it.
1: Cause we're too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can't multitask.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, yeah. You lose sight of that probably.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, you start looking at a, a spectra and, I think a lot of specters are like this, where towards the low end of the spectra you get saturation or a lot more counts. Uh, and there's all kinds of games and corrections you can play. Basically, when you see them on a crime show, put a sample in the machine, they're like, oh, this is exactly this thing. Like, that never happens.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. You're
0: always looking at the spectra. And at first, you <laughs> knock out the three or four easy peaks. You know, you're like, <sighs> okay, yep potassium. Yep. Uranium. Yep. Got that. Okay. This is probably a duplicate peak. Uh, okay. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to detrend it to get rid of that background, but what's that? so
1: (laughs) So I was in a thesis, um, a zoom master's thesis, um, that I was on the committee this week and the student was looking at, um, Raman spectroscopy of brines, potentially, like, the same brines that could be present right under the surface on Mars. And they had a peak that was due to the fluorescent lighting in the room. Yep. (laughs) And, like, I, like, focused in on that. I'm like, how did you figure that out? And all (laughs) advisor, student, were all like, oh. (laughs) Because, yeah, while, yes, there is a book that says there's a spectra for these things, that's not what it really looks like when it happens in real life.
0: Absolutely not. And having done it, uh, trying to write software to automatically fit Spectra is a just infuriating process.
1: (laughs) Uh, Remember, we're not an explicit podcast, John. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was super funny. I was just like, wow, the fluorescent lighting in the room gave you a peek. Cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Yeah.
1: yeah so it's real tough but i mean it's super useful this is a big game changer from just having a caliper log or an sp log which is spontaneous potential which is ridiculous
0: you stick a voltmeter across the borehole and record what it reads
1: mm-hmm, right yeah exactly and then use your little witching rod to figure out where you drilled. yeah yeah sp
0: <laughs> people do not send me hate mail for oversimplifying truth. <laughs>
1: you can't oversimplify it. The units are literally a plus and a minus. (laughs) Yeah, fair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's great. I use SP logs too, but still.
0: (laughs) But these were, you know, all these methods, some of them are pioneered uh, to find uranium because we needed it during the war effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they were later adapted, or I'm going to say very shortly thereafter adapted Uh, to the geophysical realm and you know 50s these were commonplace methods which is crazy
1: oh yeah absolutely Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and i found uh, while doing a little bit of research online preparing for the show well i found a lot of cool information on uh sea-based gamma detectors that you can like tow behind ships but there is a company now uh, based out by where i used to live in colorado that is making for environmental applications a gamma an active gamma probe that is three quarters of an inch in diameter and 19 (gasps) inches long (gasps) so you can do like one of those little push cores into a (sighs) landfill and lower this thing into it
1: that could do a sediment core that you do in the soil yeah that is super cool
0: very cool
1: Oh, wow. Okay. That's um,
0: Which is a huge contrast to the tools that, you know, we were talking about before that are 20 feet long and six inches in diameter. Oh,
1: exactly. And you have to have massively huge trucks and everything to carry around. Oh, that is so neat. Hmm. Uh,
0: Another thing that you can detect and see, though, I don't really know that you ever do it in energy, but in environmental, all the time we're trying to find radon.
1: Right. Mhm. Yeah, we don't care about that.
0: Uh because fun fact radon is the only radioactive element that can exist as a gas. Yep. So, it can travel in water as a dissolved solid or as a dissolved gas. Super <laughs> and, useful. Yeah. And it's really carcinogenic. Uh,
1: yes. Yeah.
0: So that we happens. care about, I mean when I'm sure you did too. But when we lived in Colorado, we had radon mitigation radon in our detectors.
1: basement. Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. Radon detectors everywhere.
0: Correct. Yep. And we had a we had a big fan that vented out from underneath our slab constantly, twenty four seven.
1: Just in case.
0: Well, they tested it and they said, "Yeah, if you're going to spend a lot of time in your basement, which I did, <laughs> uh, that you need to do something about this because the levels of radon gas in the basement were very high."
1: Wow. Um,
0: Explains so much.
1: I didn't say it. You did. <laughs> uh, there is a, um, while we're on Radon, um, I'll add my pet peeve, which is a mile over from me. There is a <laughs> community and it's big acreage houses and it's Radon Estates. R-A-E-D-A-W-N. <laughs> it just cracks me up every time.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm like, that's not a good word, but. Maybe that's just to environmental people.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but and it, I mean, there's a lot of cool history in the early days of radioactivity. Uh, I mean, we've all heard stories of the folks that painted watch faces with radium so they glowed, and they would lick the paintbrushes.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: later had no jaws. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so that's a a quick flyover of how we use these radiometric methods in geophysics to learn more about what's below the surface because Shannon won't fit down a borehole
1: (laughs) unfortunately
0: (laughs) right so with that I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper Friday yay yeah so this is a listener submitted fun paper
1: Yes, so we got this um, back in March from Sealad, and (laughs) it's pretty funny. (laughs) Um, I have a special place in my heart for this, but the paper that Sealad sent was Assessment and Verification of Commercially Available Pressure Cookers for Laboratory Sterilization (laughs) by Swenson et al., and this is in uh, PLOS One journal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I just think it's funny um, because... What they're talking about is substitutions for autoclaves and I didn't know what an autoclave was for a long time until I had to start taking <laughs> the, and I actually have to take it today I got, the, I got the email today I have to take lab safety for autoclave operation Why? Um, took the whole exam without knowing what an autoclave was <laughs> Because why exactly? So an autoclave is like a dishwasher for lab equipment to get microbes off of it.
0: Okay, you can send Shannon hate mail about that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what it does.
0: (laughs) Well, it uses steam and pressure.
1: Like my dishwasher.
0: (laughs) Is your dishwasher pressurized though?
1: I mean, it seems like it's squirting out pretty fast. Those are tiny little jet holes, right? Tiny little aperture holes makes for faster water.
0: Mm, okay, different process. So, Look. this is <laughs> <laughs> this is like sealing your dishwasher up and hooking it up to your air compressor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this uh, autoclaves generally deal with steam uh, that's not quite to the atmosphere boiling point of water, uh under about an atmosphere of pressure or 14 psi or one bar. Just take your pick.
1: hmm Okay. I'll take the bar. Okay. <laughs> a thousand
0: millibars. Yeah, I like if that you will.
1: better. <laughs> um yeah, so it's like a dishwasher. Uh <laughs> I'm not gonna stop. <laughs> I thought this was a really cool paper besides being funny to me because i hold in my hands you know permission to use an autoclave um but also because this is a really neat idea because those are expensive pieces of equipment and sterilization is an important thing and it turns out you can use instapods to sterilize stuff
0: (laughs) right and with sterilization of anything that is medical Doing a pretty okay job is <laughs> leaps and bounds better than doing nothing
1: uh, Yeah, that's true um,
0: Even doing was... an eh job is leaps and bounds better than doing nothing
1: <laughs> But the Instapot does a, a pretty good job And so, alright, so this isn't just a dishwasher, obviously But what they looked at in this paper was pressure cookers Which scare me to death I do not own an Instapot because I'm still scared of like the old pressure cookers of our parents' vintage that were real scary. Like... I
0: mean, I, I guess the fact that my entire research career has centered around pressure vessels.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. So you're not scared. <laughs>
0: like, those are the <laughs> lowest pressure things I've ever had to deal with.
1: So you're like, oh, that's real cute. <laughs>
0: um, they're, yeah, and they tested several different kinds of these food pressure cookers. And they all did a pretty okay job, but the Instapot was the only one that was able to kill this particularly uh, thermophile strain of bacteria that it's really hard to get rid of.
1: Oh, I just want, I wanted you to try to say its name.
0: Yeah, it's, it's difficult. (laughs)
1: Um, It was cool because I never thought about this either, though, in autoclaves or other things that, you know, you need to pressurize not just like metal tools. You need to sometimes, or not, sorry, not pressurize, um, sterilize metal tools, but you need to sterilize liquids too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I never even thought about that. And it was cool because how they, in their experimental methods, is they dip stuff in soil water because there's so many microbes in soil, so you're surely going to pick up stuff um, if you dip things in soil water to make sure that you had microbes on your on your tools,
0: right? So, okay, I'm gonna try it. It's Geobacillus steranothermophilus.
1: Oh, that's not bad at all.
0: Uh, <laughs> and it's cool because they have these. You have to test autoclaves and make sure they're working. Yeah. <laughs> and so they have these little vials of this that turn purple when they've been sterilized, this and is they super stay cool. yellow when they're not. So they they show in here. That an autoclave and an InstaPot both turn the vial purple.
1: Mm-hmm. There you go. And These it are took. Fun. Uh,
0: well, I mean, a, a commercial autoclave takes about a half an hour. These did take longer, between sixty and one hundred and fifty minutes.
1: Yeah, but when you don't have anything, that's the way to go.
0: I mean, look, when you're stuck on a submarine and you've got to remove an appendix.
1: That's right an instapot's the way to go you stick those meat scissors into that InstaPot, and you got it um but this is a big deal for as they point out you know labs that can't afford autoclaves or exactly when you're in the field which i thought was an interesting thing too that i never thought about
0: or an emergency situation your your hospital has just been blown away by a tornado
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know throw your instapot in the car before you head to work yeah Uh, if you're a doctor or a nurse, because it might come in useful.
1: Yeah, works pretty good. Uh, so, thank you, C-Lod. That was a super interesting um, a super interesting paper. I like uh, alternatives for costly, you know, costly lab equipment. So
0: yes, and if you're a movie writer, you should definitely use this in a plot. 100%. And if, <laughs> and if you're a marketer for Instapot, you have your new slogan. It works pretty good.
1: probably don't want to mention that bacteria part but (laughs) right
0: (laughs) Uh, well if you would like to send in the results of your geobacillus sterothermophilus (laughs) uh, sterilization tests in your pressure cooker at your house or videos of the lid of your pressure cooker impaled (laughs) in the ceiling of your house we would love to see that shannon how can folks get a hold of us
1: Oh, so scary. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. You can check us out on the Slack chat room and the Don't Panic channel uh, of the software underground. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Um, If you would like to support us on Patreon and keep us going, you may do so, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo.
0: And until next week, remember, don't panic.